welcome to 321 I Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the chair and co founder of I Relaunch, and your host for today. Today, we are privileged to have as our guest Lisa Damore. Lisa is a psychologist, author, teacher, speaker, and consultant, and a PhD. Dr. Damore writes the monthly adolescence column for the New York Times and is a regular contributor at CBS News. She serves as a senior advisor to the Schubert Center for Child Studies at Case Western Reserve University and is the executive director of Laurel School Center for Research on Girls. Dr. Damore is the author of two New York Times bestselling books, Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood, and Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. She also maintains a private psychotherapy practice. Now, as we head it further into uncertain times with a growing number of us in our homes, alone with our significant others, or with children of all ages, including adult children, as they are sent home from closed colleges, shuttered abroad programs, and rescinded job offers, we're in completely new territory. So we turn to Dr. Lisa Damore for her guidance and wisdom today. Lisa, thank you for joining us. Very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, we want to start by just diving in and talking about this day-to-day existence we have now. We're home. Uh, we are trying to conduct our relauncher, our relaunches. Maybe we're, we're not even sure if we should be proceeding right now or not. Uh, it's easy to succumb to depression and anxiety when we feel vulnerable and we have our families around us and they feel vulnerable and we feel vulnerable on their behalf. Can you talk to us about that environment and how we should proceed? Absolutely. So this is certainly um, unprecedented and odd for everybody. And it is really ripe for a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety for everyone, even if things were going in one's life just as you wanted them before this. Uh, This is a tough time under COVID-19. I think that what we should appreciate is that stress happens anytime we have to adapt to new conditions. And psychologists have long recognized this. We've we've always um, pointed out that stress is part of life and it happens, it's not necessarily bad. So (laughs) stress can happen under really good conditions, like when you're welcoming a baby home for the first time, you Mm -hmm. know, and this is wanted and wonderful. Um, But we all have experienced that if you have kids as a highly stressful thing, especially the first time you do it. Um, And then stress can also happen under very difficult conditions like the ones we're in. And one of the ways we really measure how stressful something is, is how much adaptation it requires. And the rapid upheaval that has come with COVID-19 has required extraordinary volumes of adaptation Mm -hmm. for everybody. And that is in and of itself is intensely stressful. Even if the cause were good, which in this case it's not, having to change that much that fast is actually very, very taxing for human beings. So what I would say is 
that we get some relief if we take a step back from all of this and just appreciate that so much of the the wear and tear we're experiencing right now psychologically is that we are doing our whole lives differently than we did them literally two weeks to 10 days ago. Mm-hmm. And and every element of our lives, um, where we go, how we go places, where we get food, when we get food, how we get food. I mean, I just came back from the grocery store and this thing that I do every week, at least once or twice, if not quite a bit more often, I now am having to do in a completely new way. Right. I feel like there's almost no corner of my life that hasn't been um, altered by this. And then, as you mentioned, people who have kids home or their significant other home, their lives are also upended. So this is basically a stress bonanza. Even if you take out the health fears and the economic fears, the sheer volume and speed of adaptation required right now is going to take it out of us. Right. So I'm thinking um, as an extension, uh, since you do a lot of work on teens and families, I'm wondering if you can comment on how we guide our teenage and young adult children. Uh, Now, you know, as you're saying, everyone's world is completely upended. We don't know what the future looks like. And that includes teens who may be looking for summer jobs and maybe they can't look for those jobs right now. Or maybe we have adult children who actually received a job offer. Now it's um, rescinded or maybe they're in the middle of a job search and everything is halted. Um, how do we advise our teenage and young adult children uh, who are in that kind of a situation? It's a great question. I think there's sort of two parts to how we work with young people in the you know in the scenario you describe. Mm-hmm. So the first, I think, is we have to address how upsetting and disruptive this is for them. Mm-hmm. There is an enormous amount of loss happening for young people right now. They have worked really hard. You know, stuff is being taken away. You know, every day they lose something new. And And I think soon that will slow down as there's just this awareness that there's probably not much of the school year left to salvage, if any. Um, you know, but I think that there's sort of this looming sense of what is going to be taken away next. Is graduation definitely gone? Is prom definitely gone? Is, you know, the thing I thought I was going to do with my friends right after college graduation, is that definitely gone? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that it's it's a, it's a rolling sense of ongoing loss. And this stinks. I mean, this is really um, bizarre and horrible. And a lot of the things that young people are missing or having taken from them are kind of once in a lifetime experiences, yeah. you know, that adults may be frustrated by, by stuff that they didn't, they're not going to get to do, but it's not on the scale typically of one's high school graduation or one spring semester, you know, um, of senior year of college, you know, that those are really rare and precious and, you know, moments that are not going to, there's not a do over on these. So before we jump in with trying to help young people figure out their path forward, I think the kindest and most decent and probably also most productive thing we can do is to just make space for them to be incredibly upset and deeply sad and frustrated and angry, even though there's no one to get angry at. Mm -hmm. Um, Sitting in that empathic space will make it possible for them to then think about how to move forward. But if we just jump to moving forward, we're missing a step and we're probably not going to have a a full partner in that if 
they're not feeling heard in terms of the emotional impact of this. Um, Lisa, can you give us some scripting? Like, what is the actual language you might use if you're yeah. having this conversation? I think it should be very unqualified, <laughs> meaning like there should be no ands, ifs, or buts around it. Mm-hmm. So I think the kinds of things parents might be saying to young people right now is first waiting for the you know the teenager to express some distress. I wouldn't roll up on them with, you know, like, you must be so upset. Um, I would wait for them to express some distress. And then I would say, I would say, I am heartbroken for you that this has happened. I am, you have every right to be beside yourself with frustration and sadness about this. Mm -hmm. You have been robbed of really precious and rare and once in a lifetime experiences. You're having the right reaction. And and I think we worry that if we validate at that level, we're going to deepen their distress. But typically, you actually see the alternate, which is they feel heard and then can start to pull out of it. Um, the, the model we always use in psychology is that when you're having a painful feeling, the only way out is through. Just have it. Mm-hmm. That it let it crest, let it come to its its peak, and then typically it will recede. And so, you know, really um, going ahead and meeting young people at how sad they are, making it clear they're not alone in that, that they that you recognize the depth of their sadness about it will often be the thing that kind of nudges them to then be able to pick up their heads and try to figure out, okay, well, so then now what do I do given Mm -hmm. these conditions? But I think it's an essential step and one easy to blow past. Having done that, we can then turn to the question of like, okay, so what's next? (laughs) How are you going to chart your way? And I think it's probably going to feel like a fairly a state of suspended animation for a lot of people right now, mm-hmm. both adults and young adults, in terms of trying to figure out employment or where do they go or what happens. And what I would say as big, broad, generic advice for everybody in the midst of all this upheaval is come up with, with a routine. Just make yourself a daily routine and stick to it. Um, don't swim in this sea of um, unstructured time. Go ahead and structure your time. So what I would say is for adults and also, you know, young adults and teenagers and kids, everybody should have a plan for their weekday. They should have a sense of roughly when they wake up, when they eat breakfast. This can all be quite a bit more relaxed, Mm -hmm. you know, than our normal schedules are. And then, and I would say this for adults who are re-entering the job force and also younger people who are thinking about the job force, have a part of your day where you work on that. You know, work on one's resume, look at job options, you know, talk to people, network, have a to-do list that includes a part of the day where one is doing what one can in a forward way on um, the search for the next step. And then have exercise and then have lunch and then, you know, like have it all scheduled. It really matters to have a routine. And there's two reasons for that. Even under these conditions where we sort of have to invent them for ourselves, but we're not necessarily required by outside structures to do it. Um, One reason to have a routine is that it's important, I think, to get to the end of the day and have a sense of what you did with your day. (laughs) 
And I'm finding I'm I'm still struggling to get a rhythm right now. And I am finding that I get to the end of the day and I'm like, I don't know what happened. Like I don't know where my time went. Right. And and I'm finding that a little bit demoralizing. So I think um, I'm really striving to have a clearer sense of I did this and then I did that and then I did that. Yeah. Um, just so I can feel like there's some accomplishment um, between when I wake up and when I'm trying to call it a night. Right. That, that structure piece is so important. It's so important. But then the other thing, and this is really, really important in terms of what we know about psychological science. Decision making is taxing. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something we just know about how human mental um, activity works. Making decisions is actually a very demanding thing on our minds and requires a lot of energy. And for most of us who have regular routines, which most of us do, you know, your kids go to school at this time, you get in the car at this time, you work out at this time, you eat breakfast at this time, you have this for lunch, you know, we most of us have those. The beauty of those is they've actually removed a great number of our daily decisions, that we're not on a daily basis thinking, well, should I get out of my sweats now or should I do this Zoom call and then get out of my sweats after mm-hmm. the Zoom call? You know, mm-hmm. we're not making those kinds of choices. And and so when we lose all routine, as we have, what we get in exchange is a cornucopia of decisions. And those take it out of us. So the beauty of establishing for oneself a routine, even when nothing externally is requiring it, is that it actually reduces the number of decisions that get made in the day. And that actually opens up bandwidth for other intellectual activity. Hmm. You know, um, one I'm thinking about this uh, in regard to different ages of kids. And uh, one of the uh, corporate clients that we have the other day said, that she actually, she has younger kids and she actually makes their lunchbox and, and snack every day, just like she would for school. So they, and they still eat their snack and their lunch at the same time as they would, as if they were in school. And I thought that was a really great way to put some framework around um, what their day might look like and introduce structure. But I'm thinking more about the, I think more challenging teenager who wants to be independent, but also might want to just sleep all day, like the the teens who are maybe more susceptible to depression and anxiety even before this happened. And then the teens who were maybe not susceptible, but maybe this is triggering that a little bit. And they just want to be independent from you, but they also don't want to have a structure and sleep. Like, how do you manage that? Terrific um, to think that through. So What I would say, again, if we just go with the idea that everybody needs structure, everybody needs routine, full stop, non-negotiable, like this, this is something we know in psychology. So then what I would say with anyone over the age of 12, really, I mean, by the time you get to 12, I really, you know, I consider 11 and 12 year olds to be early adolescents, Mm -hmm. you know, they're already operating in that way. So I think we sit down with them and say, okay, there's some non-negotiables here and there are some negotiables here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, The non-negotiables, you're going to have a routine. Right. <laughs> you're going to have a structure to your week, to your weekdays, the weekends, right? Maybe all bets are off, but five days a week, you got to have a structure mm-hmm. to your day. Right. And here are the things that have to be in that structure. And parents can come up with, you know, here are the elements I wanted to include, you know, and, and you, you, you know, depending on the kid's age, you know, this much reading or this much help with the house or this much, you know, stop and 
go and get stuff for your grandparents or, you know, like the parent can articulate the non-negotiables of what some of what should populate that routine. Mm -hmm. Then I would say to the young person, come up with a plan and show it to me. You get to determine these hours and where they fit and how. Um, Show me what you got. I'll look at it. I'll let you know if I have any questions or feedback. Um, and, and I think that's how we start that conversation. And for me on the sleep piece, (laughs) I'm actually feeling really relaxed about that right now because no young person gets the sleep they need. And, and just to be clear, elementary school kids need 11 hours. Middle school kids need 10 hours. Adolescents need nine hours of sleep a night. Hmm. So they all are carrying sleep debts. They all are behind on how much sleep they need. And so right now, if kids are sleeping a lot, I think that's great. Mm -hmm. They're paying off their sleep debts. Mm -hmm. Um, What we should expect is that teenagers, once they've paid that debt off a little bit, are going to um, hover closer to nine hours in terms of what they need. But if we do nothing with this bizarre set of circumstances that have descended upon us, yes. let's all sleep enough for <laughs> once. Like, that's one thing we can do. Uh-huh. Oh, so th- that's great to reframe that and actually think about sleep or extended sleep as a good thing. And a time, the now is the time to do that. Maybe for all of us, you're saying the adults and, and the kids. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I am sleeping. I am finding myself some nights putting in 10 hours. Mm-hmm. And what that tells me is that I have been carrying more of a sleep debt than I've mm-hmm. realized. Mm-hmm. Um, what about like making them responsible for a meal or for taking care of a pet? Uh, is Does that sound fair under these conditions? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the things you brought up that's really critical in this is um, kids who maybe were feeling emotionally fragile before all of this, or kids who might be at risk of feeling emotionally fragile. And um, there's two reasons to require young people to make themselves useful and to do things that may not be at the top of their own to-do lists. Mm -hmm ideally. One is just this principle of self-esteem maintenance. And the basic principle of self-esteem maintenance is that people feel good about the things they do well. So you may spend all day vibing, as I'm hearing many young teenagers call it, you know, watching TV, doing your nails. That's great. You may need that every once in a while. You're not going to feel good about yourself if you're doing that day after day after day. That's not going to be a source of reliable self-esteem. There's not going to be a sense of being able to point to one's accomplishment and feel proud. The other is people feel good when they take care of other people. Hmm. That an important part of feeling good about oneself is being able to recognize one's contributions to others and one's value to others. And so requiring young people to help with cleaning. Say, you know, a lot of people say who had um, folks who came in to clean for them are, you know, now suspending those services Mm -hmm. and hopefully paying the people who did that work for them anyway. But that means then that we all need to be cleaning our own houses if we weren't doing it before. That can be a task that gets shared by everybody. That's an easy, straightforward example Mm -hmm. of, of pitching in that, it's okay if they roll their eyes. It's okay if they grumble. That doesn't mean you back off from the expectation. 
Great, great example. Um, we One of our community members uh, specifically asked if you could comment on managing or preventing sibling rivalry. And um, now I'm thinking about, does, is that are the rules any different now that we're in these unusual circumstances? They're probably not. I mean, one thing that's interesting is I'm hearing that a lot of families are really glad or kids are really glad to have their siblings, you know, yeah. because they're sort of stuck at home. And so there's, you know, a degree of like company and entertainment to be had that um, would be very lonely without the sibling. And um, I have two daughters and they're, um, they're seven years apart. One is nine and one is 16. And they're actually really enjoying each other a lot and or um, managing boredom by antagonizing each other, you know, which is often how they manage boredom. And so um, either way, it's fine. Like they just, as long as they don't bother us, we don't mind so much. Um, but rivalry is an interesting thing, you know, and it's often like a comparison question, comparing oneself to one sibling and then feeling like one comes up short. Mm. And so there's this, this thing that I always fall back on um, when I think about sibling rivalry and, and I'll give a little context context about how, how it came into my life and why it mattered to me so much when it did. Um, I um, always knew that I wanted to be a psychologist and to get into a doctoral program in clinical psychology usually requires having done some pretty heavy duty research before you even apply to grad school. Mm-hmm. And so I um, graduated from college and um, then literally walked my plants from my dorm room to an apartment in the same town where I had gone to college to continue a same job I had had as an undergraduate, which was on a research squad. Um, And so I felt pretty um, lame (laughs) compared to my um, college classmates who were off to Harvard Law School and Yale Medical School and had Rhodes Scholarships and were like this extraordinarily impressive crowd. And here I was making $18,000 a year in the same job I'd had as an undergraduate for no money. So it was, it was really, I felt very small and very um, sorry for myself Mm. and very, um, very uh, inadequate by comparison. And um, the same year that I graduated from college, my stepbrother graduated from high school and I went to his graduation still sore from my graduation and uh, my sort of feeling so small. And Um, his school had a rabbi who um, gave part of the graduation service. And he told this story from, it's not even Old Testament. I think it's Talmudic, you know, very sort of buried in the readings of these two brothers. Um, And one was named, and I don't remember, it was like, you know, Levi. And the other one was named like Heschel, you know, or something. (laughs) And Levi was extremely impressive, you know, like really amazing, you know, this incredible guy. And um, Heschel always felt like he never measured up to Levi, and he felt sad about it um, and was sort of down about it. And then finally, one day, their father says to Heschel, Heschel, when you get to heaven, God's not going to say, why weren't you Levi? Um, God's going to say, why weren't you Heschel? Mm-hmm. And, and that just... This was now, what, 25 plus years ago that I was standing there when this guy said this. And it landed on me so perfectly well in that moment. I was like, right, I actually don't want to go to law school and I don't want to go to medical school. I don't want to do the things they're doing. And to do the thing I want to do, I have to do what I'm doing. And it just set me right. And so as I think about siblings, I love that story because I I think that's great. That's your brother. That's what he does. 
he's doing him. Mm -hmm. You do you. Mm -hmm. What's you? Like your job is not to try to be him. Your job is to be you in the best version possible. And, and so I think that that to me feels like a reliable um, space to go to when a kid is feeling like they don't measure up Mm -hmm. to a sibling. Mm -hmm. That is such, such a, a, an excellent story. And it's so meaningful. So thank you for that. Lisa, you you write the uh, adolescence column for the New York Times, and last week's column was called Quarantinagers, love the name, um, but it was dealing with a, a serious topic of parenting with teens close at home. And one of the pieces of advice in it uh, was about treating teenagers as problem-solving partners. And I love that advice. Um, it, it actually parallels with some advice that we give relaunchers to bring in your child, no matter what their age is, in an age-appropriate way, along with you um, as you're going through the relaunch process and as you're experiencing excitement and rejection and getting and asking their opinion on things. So really having them be partners in that regard. Can you talk about having uh, treating teenagers as problem-solving partners um, in as in the age of quarantining. Yeah. So we're all trying to figure out how to live our lives right now and get things done. And so much of what we're facing is having to solve a whole set of problems that present themselves each day. And the principle that never fails me when I think about young people is that they live up to expectations and they live down to expectations. So if we treat them like they don't know what they're doing and they can't be helpful to us, there's a good chance they're going to meet us right there. (laughs) They're they're not going to bring their best and they're not going to try to be helpful. If we approach young people as the creative, adaptable, innovative, resilient young people they are, they're going to bring that to us too. So for every problem that we are now encountering, I mean, I just got home with a whole bunch of groceries that needed to be cleaned off. Um, That's the kind of thing where you can ask a teenager, all right, what's the best system for doing this? They're in the car. They got to get in the house. What do you think? Mm. And getting them in on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then certainly in terms of help with technology, (laughs) you know, and using technology to connect other people. Um, I think a lot of us are like, wait, get me a 15-year-old. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I, I think. You know, all through this, we should assume that that they are fresher and more nimble than we are. That is true under normal conditions. That's going to be true under current conditions. And I have to tell you, setting aside the sadness piece, right, which is massive. You know, a lot of young people have lost a lot. My kind of Scooby sense right now is that young people are having an easier go of this than their parents are. Mm. Um, that a lot of young, a lot of teenagers, I think, feel like, well, this is kind of great. I'm finally getting enough sleep. Um, some of the, you know, extras and annoyances of school are gone. Right. Um, I'm getting to, you know, connect with people I really, really like and don't have to deal with people I don't like. Um, that they adapt faster than we adapt. And so I would, really encourage adults to look to their teenagers and lean on their teenagers as valuable thought partners as we find our way through all of this. 
Great. You know, it's making me, this is making me ask a, a question I hadn't thought of before. Um, so I'm just thinking about mean girls and all, and clicks and all these negative, um, so, so social structures that take place when kids are all at school together. And you're saying, you know, now people can hang out with who they want and not with other people. And I'm just curious about, you, you know, these um, sort of toxic social structures, do they evaporate in, in an uncertain, like unprecedented time like this, or do they just morph into some other form? So this is really tricky. So here's what we know from the research, and it's largely reassuring, except for this one little piece that I'm like really fretting about right now. So what we know from the research under normal conditions, because that's, you know, we don't have anything like this to look at mm -hmm. in terms of research we've done before. But under normal conditions, kids' online lives tend to reflect their in real life lives. So if they have positive social connections and good friends in real life and don't get into that much social drama or conflict, that's also largely true in terms of how they manage themselves online, that they have a good time with their friends online, they deepen those connections online, it's playful, it's lovely. You know, adults don't need to worry too mm -hmm. much about how they're spending their time on social media. Okay, unfortunately, it's also true that if kids struggle in terms of their social relationships, find themselves involved in a lot of drama and conflict, that tends to carry over to their online lives as well. And so when we look at those kiddos online, we see one of two things. One is that online, they're actually talking to a lot of people they don't know in real life, that maybe they don't have such positive social connections in real life. So they use their online world to connect to people who are actually kind of strangers, mm -hmm. which we don't love. Um, or they're mixing it up online. They're being bullied or they're bullying or they're doing both online. So right now, I am actually not that worried about kids with positive social connections and how they're using their online time. You know, my sense is it's a lifeline. It's fantastic. It lets them stay connected to their friends, which, of course, is what they want to do more than anything in the whole wide world. Mm -hmm. I am worrying about the kiddos who don't have great social relationships in real life and now have nothing but their online universes. And I'm trying to think through guidance to families. What I've gotten to so far is if that's your kid, and the good news is this is actually a very small percentage of kids. Mm -hmm. we, we actually know, you know, kind of, so we're talking about probably under 10% of kids where this is really a grand concern. But for those kids, I would say, if you don't feel like you're, child has really figured out a good positive social life in real life, keep a really close eye now on how they're using digital technology mm -hmm. and watch it carefully, uh, maybe monitor it more than you thought you needed to. And then the part where I'm getting stuck, and I, I hate not having an answer, is, is there anything we can be doing in this space to help them cultivate positive social relationships? Mm -hmm. And th that piece feels really hard. Mm -hmm. Um because of the social distancing that is so important right now. But minimally, I would really work to keep them from digging themselves into a deeper hole um, online. Well, we'll keep an eye on your writings and your columns um, for your evolving uh, thinking on this topic. But thank you. Um, so we're I want to wrap up now, and I have a couple of final questions to ask you. One of them is almost a logistical, practical question. So you have a private therapy practice, and I wanted to know if you can talk about, are therapy sessions still taking place, but they've just sort of moved 
you know, onto Zoom or, or, or FaceTime, or is there something else going on to, uh, to, to provide therapy for those who are used to having it in person? Okay, so there's really good news here. Um, most state boards, including mine here in Ohio, have utterly relaxed the rules about what we call telehealth. Mm-hmm. So pre-COVID-19, there was, you know, you had to sort of have a special certification and it was special, you know, kind of circumstances for using telehealth. Um, my board in particular, and I'm sure other boards are the same, they've been communicating like crazy, like all bets are off, just go take care of mm-hmm. people. Just Good. you know, be, make yourself available. I know I, I was. It's really important because, of course, we worry about amplified mental health concerns now. Right. So, if you need psychological support, you can get it. You do not have to go to somebody's office. Um, I like Psychology Today is a pretty good marketplace for finding a good clinician. So is your um, general practitioner. But then you just call them up. And say, you know, are you doing telehealth appointments? And I can tell you, a lot of clinicians have lost a lot of work lately. Mm-hmm. And so people are being flexible. The boards are giving us a right to be flexible. So do not feel that this is a moment when you can't get help. Help is definitely available. And even um, I know that certainly the Ohio State Board is working with insurance companies to make sure that the coverage is as good as it should be and all of that. So um, go for it definitely reach out for help if you need oh, it. Wow. Thank you. I'm glad we, ha- I'm glad I asked that question that I, I, I wasn't expecting that answer and, and it, it is really good news. Uh, Lisa, I'm going to wrap up now. I love this conversation, but um, we, we have to um, uh, wrap it up. So my final question is the question that we ask all of our podcast guests. And that is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that we've already talked about today? So my advice is actually something that we didn't touch on. So I'm really glad you asked. And it's about coping. And this advice applies both to coping under these completely strange COVID-19 situations, but also coping with what I imagine might be some of the chronic stress of um, relaunching. You know, and all of the, you know, having to kind of put oneself out there repeatedly and and pick oneself up a lot. So as I think about COVID-19 and the fact that we may be in this for a bit of a long haul, my preoccupation has become with whether or not people are using positive coping strategies or whether they're using negative coping strategies. And I am absolutely convinced that the way people are going to come out of this COVID-19 situation will depend entirely on which coping strategies they use. So when I say negative coping strategies, I mean things like emotional withdrawal, um, not taking good care of oneself, right? Staying up late, you know, eating junk, Mm -hmm. being sedentary, um, abusing substances or misusing substances, drinking too much, smoking weed to manage um, distress, or um, taking it out on others, being cranky with other people and um, short-tempered with them. Um, It's important to recognize those are all coping strategies. Those all help people feel better in the short term, but they cause tremendous difficulty in the long term. For every one of those, we can flip them and find their positive corollary. So instead of emotional withdrawal, I would say social connection. People Mm -hmm. are going to really need to count on the ones they love and be loving with the people around them. Mm. Instead of taking crummy care of oneself, we're going to take incredibly good care of ourselves. We're going to sleep a lot. We're going to eat really well. We're going to find ways to exercise and get outdoors. We're going to do all of those things. 
instead of misusing substances to numb feelings, we're going to use happy distractions. We're going to watch terrific television shows and oh my gosh, there's so much good stuff yeah, on TV these days. Sure. <laughs> and we're going to, you know, we're going to read and we're going to play and those distractions are going to be how we numb our sadness or distract ourselves from our sadness or frustration um, at times. And then um, for the last, you know, we're going to reach out to other people and we're going to take care of other people. We're going to um, not mistreat others. We're going to really put our emphasis on, on reaching out and being there for the people around us. And, and I, um, I'm absolutely convinced, you know, everything I know as a psychologist is um, if people can just focus on that, don't do the negative coping strategies, do do the positive coping strategies, the rest will sort itself out. What great advice and what a, a perfect way to wrap up our conversation. Lisa, can you tell our audience how they can find out more about your work and your books? Sure. So I have a website. It's Dr. Lisa Damore. So D R L I S A D A M O U R dot com. And that has all of my work, uh, my work for CBS and my work for the New York Times. And then it's got information about uh, my two books which are um, for parents of um, adolescents. And, and though they're tipped towards girls, I hear all the time that 80% of both books applies to boys, which I think is true. Um, and then I'm constantly putting new content there. So um, that's an easy way to see what I'm up to. Wonderful. We'll put that link in our podcast notes too. Um, Lisa, what a pleasure this has been. Thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening to 321 I Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the chair and co founder of I Relaunch, and your host. For more information on I Relaunch, go to irelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on iTunes and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.